540 Penn Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C. Special performances by the legendary Plunky from Oneness of Juju and the dynamic Brandon Woody's Up Indu. Plus, don't miss the exclusive screening of the captivating Black Fire documentary. Tickets are available at songbirddc.com. That's S-O-N-G-B-Y-R-D-D-C.com. From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, February 12th, 2024. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, advances in the effort to restore voting rights to people with felony convictions. Plus, how a new federal labor rule tries to protect millions of misclassified workers, but probably won't solve the problem. All that and more. Plus, we are in Pledge Drive. Call 202-588-9739 and make a donation to support Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Stay with us. Newly proposed congressional legislation would achieve a landmark gain to expand voting rights and reinforce Democratic participation by ending felony disenfranchisement, which is the denial of the right to vote for those convicted of felony crimes. On December 6th, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and Senator Peter Welch of Vermont introduced the Inclusive Democracy Act, which would allow all currently and formerly incarcerated people to vote in federal elections, regardless of their incarceration status or nature of conviction. The unveiling of the bill took place at a press conference where Congresswoman Presley emphasized the urgency of the issue. Let me make it plain. The right to vote is sacred in America and it is essential to citizenship and all citizens deserve a voice in our democracy. But today, nearly 4.6 million citizens are denied the right to vote because of a criminal conviction barring them from voting in our federal elections. That is 4.6 million people. 4.6 million people disproportionately black Americans who are unfairly disenfranchised and are unable to make their voices heard in our elections. In 48 states across our country, we have a confusing and inconsistent patchwork of laws that treat different crimes as felonies and set different standards for disenfranchisement. What this means is that states can arbitrarily make decisions about who to disenfranchise and for how long often resulting in people who are actually eligible to vote, foregoing voting due to confusion or to avoid further criminalization. These disparities didn't just happen overnight. They're the result of decades of precise, intentional, and legislated policy violence. And as lawmakers, we have an opportunity and an obligation to reject this unjust status quo and advance bold policies that strengthen our democracy and make it more inclusive. That's why we're here today, to introduce the Inclusive Democracy Act, a historic, brand new, first of its kind bill that will end the stain of felony disenfranchisement in America and guarantee the right to vote for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated citizens. Among those welcoming the introduction of the bill is the Sentencing Project, which is a member of the National Voting in Prison Coalition and advocates for effective and humane responses, criminalization, and imprisonment by promoting racial, ethnic, economic, and gender justice. In a public statement, Nicole D. Porter, Senior Director of Advocacy with the Sentencing Project said, quote, this bill is an important step in upholding the principles of our democracy and building a more just and inclusive society, close quote. To learn more about the impact of felony disenfranchisement and the movement to eliminate it, we turned to Nicole Porter. And as she explained, 
the racist and discriminatory practice of felony disenfranchisement has deep roots in our nation's past. Well, the history is clear on that, particularly in the southern states that reconstituted themselves following the Civil War and the use of felony as a proxy for blackness to exclude black men from the franchise following the end of Reconstruction and the development of Jim Crow policies throughout the South and eventually throughout the country because those policies weren't just focused on the South. And not only did these states use felonies as a proxy for blackness, but in at least two of these states, Mississippi and Alabama, their state constitutions during the post-Reconstruction period defined a felony in such a way that it narrowed disenfranchisement to a specific list of crimes they believed black men were most likely to commit. They actually specified out at the time offenses like burglary and wife beating as offenses that would result in the disenfranchisement of citizens because they assumed the people who would be most convicted of those types of convictions were black men. And other felony offenses, serious offenses, were not included amongst the disenfranchising crimes in Mississippi and Alabama. In Mississippi, for example, the crime of homicide was not on the original list of disenfranchising crime. So there's this paradox at the time of the state constitution following the Civil War that a citizen could be disenfranchised for beating their wife. But, you know, this was men, right, because women were disenfranchised at this time. But that a male citizen could be disenfranchised for beating their wife, but not for killing her. And that is all because of who the elites, the white elites at the time, assumed who would be committing certain offenses and who wouldn't, and their attempt at targeting certain offenses as a pathway to excluding certain citizens from the electorate, from the franchise, in the targeting of black male suffrage in particular. Of course, as James Baldwin reminded us, history is not the past, it is the present. Such is the case with felony disenfranchisement and racial disparities. As the Sentencing Project estimated in 2022, 5.3% of African Americans were disenfranchised for felony conviction, compared to 1.5% of the non-African American population. And two years later, Nicole Porter says the pattern continues. So there are still disenfranchising laws specified out in the Mississippi, Alabama, and other state constitutions that target, it, that target specific offenses as a disenfranchisement um, offense. I think today the lack of recognition of history and how laws and the criminal legal system have been used to reinforce racial caste in the United States contribute to an implicit, if not outright explicit, issue of, of, of disenfranchising black residents and other residents of color because of the way the criminal legal system operates in the United States. I think the criminal legal apparatus as it's developed since the post-reconstruction period through Jim Crow and now into the era of mass incarceration, of which we're over 50 years into the era of mass incarceration, has contributed to an increased level of arrest and incarceration, targeting certain communities in this country because of the way police resources are deployed, targeted to major city areas that are um, overrepresented by black residents, the ongoing practice of racial profiling, that's dominant in police culture throughout the United States, not just in the South, but also in the Northeast and out West. These are not necessarily specific policies that are a part of any police playbook, but they're a part of an overall dominant culture that has continued 
to target and disproportionately impact black communities around the country. And because of the cumulative disadvantage that black residents experience in their um, contact of the criminal legal system, from the point of arrest to the point of uh, sentencing, imprisonment, and post-incarceration, post-sentence completion experiences, including felony disenfranchisement. There's an overall pattern within the United States that's systematic, that's structural, that continues to uh, contribute to the racial disparity, the significant racial disparity of which black residents experience disenfranchisement in the United States. And barring any federal legislation along the lines of the Inclusive Democracy Act, felony disenfranchisement will continue given how much the laws vary state by state where the decisions about felon voting rights are made. There are two states that never banned people from voting with a felony conviction and in fact allow people in sentenced to prison with felony convictions regardless of their criminal conviction whether or not it's a serious offense for homicide or a less serious offense that's still a felony they can still vote even while incarcerated even while in prison those states are Maine and Vermont and there are two territories Puerto Rico since the 1980s and Washington, D.C. since 2020 that allow citizens sentenced to prison the right to vote. Other states, there are some states that ban people from voting, ban citizens who have a criminal uh, conviction, a felony conviction from voting for life, absent the governor's um, a, a gubernatorial pardon or other executive uh, decision. Those include Iowa and Virginia, and in fact, governors in those states have expanded voting rights to people with felony convictions in recent years. And then other states allow people to vote immediately after incarceration. Those include states like Pennsylvania and Ohio. Other states ban people from voting while they're still completing their felony sentence in the community. That can be for decades. That can also be for life, uh, depending on the type of conviction they have. Despite that variance, there is momentum across the country toward restoring felon voting rights. As detailed in a report released in October by the Sentencing Project, since 1997, 26 states and the District of Columbia have expanded voting rights to people living with felony convictions and over 2 million Americans have regained the right to vote. I mean, the largest voting rights expansion was in the South and Florida with the adoption of Amendment 4, which restored voting rights to over a million people. Um, although the legislature followed with narrowing what it meant to complete a conviction. So the underlying policy that was changed with the ballot measure was that people who had completed their sentence in Florida were able to vote, and that was put for a vote amongst the general population on the ballot in 2018. It was successfully approved, um, but then the legislature followed up with narrowing what it meant to complete a sentence, um, thereby impacting the number of people who were enfranchised. But still, that ballot measure was the biggest expansion of voting rights um, in the country, and that was in the South. Last year, there were two states that expanded voting rights to nearly 60,000 people. One was in the Midwest, Minnesota, um, a significant expansion of voting rights to people completing their sentence on felony probation and parole in the community. Also, New Mexico last year, out West and the Southwest, expanded voting rights to people completing their sentence in the community on, on um, community supervision. And in other parts of the country in, in the last five to six years, California expanded voting rights to some 50,000 people, New York to over 35,000 people. So um, it's, it's definitely geographically diverse in terms of the expansion of rights. As the Sentencing Project has made clear, voting rights restoration isn't just the right thing to do, 
it's also good policy for the individual and the community. Multiple studies show that restoring voting rights to those impacted by the criminal legal system can reduce recidivism, thereby enhancing public safety and reducing crime. As for any suggestion that currently and formerly incarcerated people don't want to vote or don't care about democracy, in a piece posted to The Hill last August, Nicole Porter and co-author Sarah Harris wrote, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, it generalizes an entire community and as a pretext for minimizing or excluding them for full participation in democracy, and it's wrong. You know, many people in the general population who aren't touched by the criminal legal system don't want to vote. That doesn't mean that we should be a part of efforts to actively exclude them from the franchise. The ability to vote um, should be protected, should be guaranteed, should be expanded to all residents, including those completing their sentence inside and outside of prison, regardless of the crime of conviction. And there's work to be done to encourage their participation in the vote. Um, That's through civic engagement. That's through connecting how voting can impact people's real lives. That's work for civil society to do. That's work for elected officials to do, to bring people into the conversation, not dismiss them or minimize them from it. So even if people um, express a level of apathy, why that is, is probably um, very specific to their personal and lived experiences, but that shouldn't drive policy around not working actively to include them in the franchise and allow them to have a voice in our representative democracy. That was Nicole D. Porter, Senior Director of Advocacy with The Sentencing Project. To learn more about their work, go to sentencingproject.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. This is Sue Goodwin reminding you that we are in a pledge drive, and here's why. At this time in our political history here in the U.S., as multiple forces try to suppress our democracy, we understand that providing you with accurate, timely, and insightful news is an essential service, and we are asking you to make sure we can continue doing just that. WPFW is listener-supported, non-commercial radio, and we are asking you to make a tax-deductible donation today. To pledge by phone, call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 and donate what you can. To donate online, visit WPFWFM.org. We live in a time of misinformation and disinformation as the right tries to convince us what is true is actually false, and that may not be more true than when it comes to elections. And every day at WPFW, we counter that with knowledge, because we know knowledge is power. But we need you to empower us to keep doing what we do. That cannot be said enough. That means it is your financial support that keeps this station on the air and allows this program and this entire news department to fulfill our commitment to you. We cannot do this without you. So pick up the phone and pledge whatever you can or go online. The number to call is 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or simply visit WPFWFM.org and look for the Donate button. And thank you for your support.
A little over a month ago, the U.S. Department of Labor published a rule establishing criteria to determine whether a worker is considered an employee or independent contractor. On the surface, the rule sounds wonky and inconsequential, but millions upon millions of American employees have been misclassified as independent contractors, denying them protections under the law, including minimum wage and overtime provisions. Misclassified workers are also denied the right a union and collectively bargain a labor contract. The new DOL criteria aren't truly new. They simply enshrine a long-standing method of determining employment status that had been temporarily changed in the waning weeks of the Trump administration. This codification, reversing the Trump-era revision, sets up some guardrails to prevent misclassification. But does it fully solve the problem? To learn more, Monday Morning QB was joined by Sally Dworak-Fisher, senior staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project. Dworak-Fisher begins by detailing the various harms of widespread worker misclassification. Misclassification of employees as independent contractors can have a lot of negative impacts both on the workers themselves as well as the state coffers and social safety nets, as well as law-abiding businesses. First, with respect to the workers, for low-wage workers in particular, misclassifying them as independent contractors really strips them of the bedrock employment and labor protections to which they're entitled. So, for instance, you lose the right to be paid a minimum wage or to be paid time and a half when you work more than 40 hours a week. You lose the right to unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, And all the costs of running a business are transferred from the business onto the worker. So, and, you know, this this really has a negative impact for particularly low-paid workers. So, for instance, a a study of tax filings in D.C. found that a majority of independent contractors, about 60%, are only earning less than $22,000 per year. And some of the most common occupations in this income range include janitors, drivers, hairstylists. So these are some of the consequences of being misclassified as an independent contractor. You're not even eligible to be paid the bare minimum wage. You know, and another sort of analysis out of the Washington Center for Economic Growth found that nearly 10% of independent contractors are earning less than the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. And nearly one in four earn less than $15 an hour. So these are severe hits to the pocketbook. They're hits to eligibility for basic social safety net services. And they're also bad for law-abiding businesses because businesses can shave off up to 30% of their payroll costs by classifying an employee as an independent contractor. And when they do that, it makes it harder for other businesses to compete, right? So it creates this race to the bottom. And then there are costs to our social safety net programs as well. Like, you know, recent data is pretty hard to find, but there's a 2009 report from the GAO that estimated that independent contractor misclassification cost the federal government $2.72 billion in 2006. There was a similar nationwide study by the IRS that found that 15% of employers engage in misclassification and it affected 3.4 million workers and robbed the federal government of $1.6 billion. And that was in 1984 dollars. States have done their own studies as well in New York and California. They found that employers fail to report billions of dollars to state agencies each year in unemployment insurance contributions. So this is really an issue that strips lowest paid workers of basic fundamental rights and transfers the cost of doing business from the employer to the worker. One of the other big problems of misclassification, as I've read about it, is that it's a highly racialized feature of the economy. A a lot of uh, misclassification is most widespread in in occupations where there's a large concentration of black and immigrant workers. I'm curious if you can talk more about the history of of racialization of this this problem. Sure. So uh, the you're right that misclassification is highly racialized. And that's because, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the, you know, the statute that the rule is designed to impact, the Fair Labor Standards Act was purportedly designed to eliminate substandard wages and conditions. 
but it was also riddled with racist exclusions for domestic workers, for tipped workers and farm workers. So there's a through line from our national legacy of chattel slavery to policies that support occupational segregation, where people of color and women were largely limited to underpaid and precarious work. So today, black and immigrant workers continue to be overrepresented in low wage labor intensive occupations. Think of construction, trucking, delivery, home care, janitorial and agricultural occupations. And those are the occupations where misclassification and other labor abuses are common. So in a nutshell, independent contractor misclassification reinforces occupational segregation along lines of race and gender. And it really fosters a second tier workforce, disproportionately workers of color in precarious jobs stripped of bedrock employment protections. So for example, as a group, workers of color, and here I'm talking about black, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islanders and Native American workers are overly represented in heavily misclassified industries. They make up just a third of workers overall, but between 47 and 91% of workers in construction, delivery, trucking, home care, and these misclassified in industries. In digital labor platform work, Black and Latinx workers are overrepresented by 45%. So that's more than even in other traditionally misclassification-prone sectors. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of how the government defines misclassification. When the Department of Labor published its, its definition of independent contractors in early January, that official notice in the Federal Register talked about an economic reality test that had been a consistent measure of whether workers should be considered independent contractors. Can you talk about what that economic reality test is and how it's changed in, in recent years, particularly in this new rule published in January? Yeah, so in general, if I could just back up a, a minute, you know, this rule pertains to a federal statute called the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Fair Labor Standards Act is a New Deal piece of legislation that was intended to broadly cover most workers as employees and ensure that most workers got minimum wage and overtime. So it has an intentionally broad scope. However, if you are an independent contractor, someone running your own business, then you are not covered by those protections, right? Because you're running your own business. You're not an employee. So what the 2024 rule does is really just restores the analysis that the courts and the Supreme Court have used for decades, starting in the 1940s, and really consistently applied that sort of analysis by appellate and district courts ever since. And they, it's called the economic realities test. Um, it's not really a test in terms of like pass fail or you, it's a score of six to three, so you win or anything like that. It's really just an analysis that asks a very simple question. And the question is, is this worker in business for themselves? Are they running their, their own business? Or if they're not running their own business, then they're dependent on finding work in the business of another, and therefore they're covered. So the analysis takes six factors that the courts have used for decades and says, look at the whole relationship and you go through these factors and you ask, well, does this one suggest that the worker is running their own business? Does this one suggest that the employer really has a lot of control? And then you, you look at the whole situation, the whole relationship and answer that question. Is this a covered employee who's eligible for protection under the Fair Labor Standards Act? Or are they running their own business and can be fairly exempt from the protections? How much of, a, of an impact will this rule change reverting back to the uh, earlier economic reality test have on the problem of widespread misclassification? It's, it's my sense that this problem has been widespread for, for quite some time, including in eras where that earlier uh, sort of original economic reality test existed. How, how much of the problem will be solved by this rule change and, and how much will persist after the rule change? Well, you are correct that this is the same analysis that the courts had been using for decades and even the DOL had been using up until this other short-lived rule that they just replaced. So I think 
two things. One, it was important for them to replace or rescind the prior rule because that prior rule was inconsistent with the law and the way the courts had analyzed the situation to begin with. So it's worth restoring the prior analysis for the mere fact that the 2021 rule needed to be, it, it was a necessary course correction. So it restores that analysis and the extent to which this will make a big difference really depends on enforcement and compliance, right? So I can't really predict the extent to which the Department of Labor will be able to rein this problem in given their current resources. I will say though that it's important for them to put out guidance to both businesses and workers about how they are going to enforce and analyze the rule. And that's important because while this is a restoration of the prior analysis, the DOL had never put out a rule saying, this is how we're gonna analyze it before. They, they just did it that way, but it wasn't public. So now perhaps that it's public and businesses and workers alike know that like, okay, the DOL is also going to use this analysis when it goes about enforcing the law or administering the act. Um, so, you know, hopefully businesses will take notice that the DOL has announced that this is the analysis that they're going to use. But, you know, it's an excellent question. It remains to be seen how much of an impact it will have because it is, it is a restoration and the U.S. Department of Labor has limited enforcement resources. Lastly, kind of taking a step back here, you know, looking at the upcoming presidential election, if Donald Trump does win a second term here, I'd imagine that he'd install officials at the Department of Labor who are unfriendly to organized labor and unfriendly to the black and immigrant workers who I think would most benefit solving misclassification. In broad terms, if Trump does win, what would you see his administration doing in terms of this rule in particular and in terms of uh, making changes to longstanding government policy or around misclassification or around the Fair Labor Standards Act? So I would imagine that he would likely go about rescinding this rule and trying to replace it with the one that he put in on his last days in 2021 as he was leaving. You know, his administration was already during the four years much less concerned about independent contractor misclassification and much more willing to to look at factors that don't really suggest that somebody's in business for themselves and say, well, you have some scheduling flexibility. So, you know, that could count as being an independent contractor. So I I think from where we sit, we saw his administration as being much more um much more inclined to sort of turn a blind eye towards and or green light misclassification. So I think that would be a big concern in terms of what he would do if he was reelected. I know we've discussed a lot here, but I wanted to give you a chance to provide closing thoughts if you have any. Yeah, I guess I would just say, you know, this is just guidance about who is protected by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that's the statute that protects our lowest paid workers. It prohibits child labor, and we're talking about people paid less than $7.25 an hour, people working more than 40 hours a week without being paid time and a half. So I've seen a lot of ink spilled or heard a lot of like hair on fire, the sky is falling kind of reactions to this rule. And I just want to sort of level set about what this rule is and what it does. And it's it's an interpretation of a law designed to protect the very lowest paid workers in our country. And it's simply a restoration of the standard that courts have been using. And so this sort of hair on fire approach doesn't make a lot of sense. And I hope that workers and businesses alike will sort of take note of what this rule does and doesn't do. That's Sally Dwarak Fisher, senior staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project. To learn more about the law project and the new DOL rule, visit nelp.org. That's N-E-L-P.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bengert Drowns.
We are in pledge drive this morning, and we need your support to reach this show's goal of $600. Your donations go to paying WPFW's small but dedicated staff, funding improvements to our signal strength, and maintaining proper equipment for music and public affairs special programs. To become a sustainer of this great radio station, you can call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at WPFW.org. WPFW prides itself on public affairs programs like Monday Morning QB, where, unlike in commercial media, we give ample time to guests to explain their views and positions, allowing for holistic discussion of topics important to lived experience in this city and around the world. We don't cut away to commercial break every few minutes, which disrupts the flow of information and constrains news pieces to brief bullet point explanations. At WPFW, we value digging deep on the political and social questions of the day and airing voices and perspectives typically marginalized by commercial media. But we can't do it alone. Call 202-588-9739 to make a pledge today. That's 202-588-9739. Or visit us online at WPFW.org to become a sustainer. That's WPFW.org. Back to the show. N. Scott Momaday won a Pulitzer Prize for his novel, House Made of Dawn, which portrays the journey of World War II veterans' post-war experiences. In his debut novel, Abel, a World War II veteran returns to his reservation and struggles with alcoholism. The 89-year-old poet passed away on January 31st. Here's a tribute to his literary work. Forever are those days within my reach, the days of devastation, each by each. My ghosts recount them in their broken speech. My blood is deep in that soil. I believe firmly in uh, blood memory. A capacity for remembering things beyond our own corporeal existence. My whole life has been a story of, of gathering myself in terms of my ancestry. The Kiowa part of it is crucial to me. It's, you know, I, I am a Kiowa. I identify myself in that way and uh, the Kiowas had such a colorful history their mythology is very highly developed it's a whole oral tradition in itself Kiowas are uh, a bit mysterious so we say hey Degya hey Degya is essentially storytelling they describe adventures of the Kiowa in their tribal history. It's essentially storytelling. They describe adventures of the Kiowa in their tribal history. How stories grow up into the memory of oral tradition and hand it down. Indians are storytellers. Now, those stories were passed on by word of mouth only, and so they were always just uh, one generation from being gone. Well, the oral tradition was also about knowledge, real knowledge, you know, within our uh, hearts and minds and uh, what we did and the way we lived. The way that we farmed, for example, we gathered foods, but we also cultivated. The land that we see around here is dry, and you have to live ways in which 
the rains are also supported by your ceremonies, your dances, your songs, your prayers, your rituals. This is what culture is. The old people's knowledge is your knowledge. Your knowledge is what the older people uh, took care of. Therefore, now you have that responsibility. Everything started out with the oral tradition. It is a part of language that makes the most of responsible telling, careful listening, and memory. My grandmother was a storyteller. She knew her way around words. She never learned to read or write, but somehow she knew the good of reading and writing. She had learned how to listen and delight. She had learned that in words and in language, and there only, she could have whole and consummate being. You see, for her, words were medicine. They were magic and invisible. They came from nothing into sound and meaning. They were beyond price. They could neither be bought nor sold, and she never threw words away. They, they came from nothing into sound and meaning. They were beyond price. They could neither be bought nor sold, and she never threw words away. She told me stories, and she taught me how to listen. I was a child. And I listened. My grandmother was there, without bitterness, and for as long as she lived, she bore a vision of deicide, forbidden without cause the essential act of their faith. Having seen the wild herds slaughtered and left to rot upon the ground, the Kiowas backed away forever from the medicine tree. These are the ways that I see that Scott Mamaday talks about the political. He may not engage with the political moment, but he writes about people who have lost not just their land and their families and their language and their culture, but their religion, their God. When the Kiowas were defeated in Paladura Canyon, they were driven to Fort Sill and imprisoned in the old stone corral. It was a kind of trail of tears. And their horses were killed outside in their hearing. They were stifled. This was uh, utter defeat. Satank, or Sedanga, sitting there, was a great brave warrior. I feel very close to that man. Scott Mamaday and Housemate of Dawn was able to, for the first time, really lay down the impact of World War II upon warriors, young men from various tribal cultures, and speak about the terrible toll that that took. He treats the search for identity and the conflicts between traditional cultures and Anglo society with great insight. Not only the story of returning veterans from World War II, but the impact of the larger society, the larger world, on young men who had seldom ventured far from their home villages. And then what happened? The government during the Eisenhower administration removed all these Indian people from the reservation or to, from their home. This was a federal policy because at that time there weren't any jobs on the reservation. They told them this will really be good, we'll pay for your way, but there was no program for them. After they got them there, they just let them go. We're a communal society. All of our tribes are, and so to take you, you away from that organization of community and put you in major big cities and kind of isolate you. And Scott's book told about their issues. We were always perceived to be a problem. And we always says, if you see us as a problem, we'll be a problem. They had been in combat, and they had been torn from their traditional world. They were trying to get back into it, and some of them were having a terrible time. 
They were wounded people. Abel is an example of that. The main character protagonist, Abel, came back shell-shocked. And through the course of the novel, Abel has to find a way to reimagine himself into wholeness. And there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering that goes with that. For a time, the sun was whole beneath the cloud. Then it rose into eclipse, and a dark and certain shadow came upon the land. And Abel was rest, and a dark and certain shadow came upon the land. And Abel was running. He was naked to the waist, and his arms and shoulders had been marked with burnt wood and ashes. The road curved out and lay into the bank of rain beyond, and Abel was running against the winter sky in the long, light landscape in the valley of dawn. There's so much in that, with the rain, the dawn being the beginning, his name, Abel, and that sunrise. I've taught that book so many times. It's still one of my favorite books. I've taught it as memoir, because I think this is what native memoir, indigenous memoir, looks like. Huge numbers of our uncles and fathers and grandfathers went to, to serve in the U.S. military who were like able. In that way, there was real connection, you know, real identification with and real example of ourselves. Thank you for listening to a WPFW radio, a grassroots progressive radio station that informs the public with current news and jazzy music. We believe you think this service is important and we want you to put your money towards social justice objective reporting. Call our number 202-588-9739 to contribute to this programming that airs quality news. Every single donation matters. We can't continue to do this work without your contribution. Support our efforts to hold government officials accountable and spotlight unique voices as we put the mic into the hands of everyone. Call us at 202-588-9739. Visit us at WPFWFM.org or cash up us at dollar sign WPFW. That's dollar sign WPFW. As you listen to today's programming, ask yourself, would I have heard this story told this way, as in-depth and high quality on another station? The answer is no. Tuning into WPFW is like learning about other groups that are sometimes left out of the news. We believe everyone's story matters and can be told from a first-hand account. That's why we are committed to bringing their voices directly to your favorite radio station. Each week, we are working diligently to bring you quality news. Call us at 202-588-9739, WPFWFM.org, or cash up us at dollar sign WPFW. Thanks for choosing us. We close the show today, as we often do, with a jazz birthday. On Saturday, February 10th, jazz pianist and composer Roland Hanna would have turned 92. Beginning as a classical musician, Hanna was introduced to jazz through friend and fellow pianist Tommy Flanagan. Hanna was educated at Eastman and Juilliard and performed with jazz greats including Charles Mingus and Thad Jones. From the trio record Child of Gemini, with bassist Dave Holland and drummer Daniel Humer, here's Roland Hanna's A Statement for the Truth. Happy birthday.
that's our show for today. There's still time to become a supporter of this great radio station. Call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at wpfw.org and pledge your support. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Thank you for listening and supporting Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Artistic Collaboration Group, I am doing a fundraiser for this anniversary, and that would be on February the 17th from 2 to 4 at Roots Public Charter School in the Multipurpose Room. That's at 15 Kennedy Street Northwest. The donation is $35. Uh, You can purchase the tickets on Eventbrite, or there will be some tickets at the door. So I hope to see everybody. This is... um, An amazing time to contribute to the community. Uh, The honorees will be the Davis Dance Center, as well as Roots Public Charter School. Both of these communities have been in existence for over 50 years, so I'm very, very excited to be, um, for them allowing me to do a fundraiser uh, on their behalf. So I hope to see you there. Buy your tickets on Eventbrite or you can buy your tickets at the door. You're listening to WPFW, Washington, D.C. Walk to New Orleans. All right. Let's go home. One, two, New Orleans.